0: When I started Philippians, I told you it was Paul's letter of joy. Here's what that means. If you're ever joyless, if you're ever lacking joy, read Philippians. That's the beauty of the Bible. It's life-giving. You can read it over and over again. Philippians, the whole entire book, is the size of a newspaper article. You can read it every day. And now we have a bookstore, so we're stocking commentaries for you. Some of you have never picked up a commentary on Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians. Get yourself a commentary, get a cup of coffee in the morning, read along with the commentary, study for yourself, let God speak to you. This is how you learn, this is how you grow, and let joy wash over you. When I started Philippians, I titled the entire series, Everything's Amazing, Why Is No One Happy?, everything's amazing. Remember I showed that little vignette, that video, where the comedian made fun of how amazing things are? Things are amazing. Now, I was just reading in the Wall Street Journal, they were, they were tracking GDP per capita uh, in all the countries in the world, and we are by far the richest country in the world. Not only per capita GDP, but we've got a police force at our beck and call, a fire company. You don't realize what that is until you get to another part of the world where you don't see any of that stuff. You can call 911, and if they're not there within three minutes, you're complaining and grumbling. Everything's amazing, everything that we have today. It's overwhelming. I was talking to my aunt. She's going to be 80 years old, and I said, did you ever think you'd see the things you're seeing today? I mean, this is a woman who washed clothes on a washboard. And now we've got this little guy in our pocket, right? This personal assistant. By the way, I don't know if you notice or I don't know if you know this. We don't hire personal assistants at Calvary. We hire people to do ministry actually. Because everybody has a personal assistant. This does everything a personal assistant used to do for me except make coffee. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's an app for that or there's an app coming for that. Probably come out this little hole, you know, you hit the app, you get cappuccino. Or I believe anything. Once I believed you could blow in this hole and it would play music. I'll believe anything, right? Everything's amazing. Are people happy? And here's what you need to understand. Happiness really is the goal. Blaise Pascal was right when he said, all men seek happiness without exception. They all aim at this goal, however different the means by which they look to attain it. They will never make the smallest move but to attain this goal. This is what gets people up in the morning. This is the motive of all actions of men Even those who contemplate suicide, even the person contemplating suicide is looking to end unhappiness. So there's something in us. There's something yearning to be joyful. There's a holy grail. There's a silver cup. There's something we can't hold on to. And that's why Pascal was famous for saying there is a God shaped hole in all our hearts. There's an emptiness. There's a longing, no matter how much you fill it and refill it. And, and, We can figure it out in the school of hard knocks, or we can believe Solomon. He writes Ecclesiastes. The wealthiest, wisest man who ever lived, he's better looking than you are, smarter than you are, wealthier than you are. He tried it all, and he said it was all vanity. It was chasing after the wind. It never can make you happy. You can never hold on to it. And he said, here's the sum of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is man's all. We need to be all in with God, Solomon said. He said, if I could do it over again, I'd be all in with God. The pursuit of God, to know God is man's chief aim. And this is why the Apostle Paul can write from a jail cell and say, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Tied to a Roman guard, he could say, be joyful in all situations. Here in America, we've reached the zenith of what happiness could look like if it was based on circumstances. And again, we're not happy. There's something missing. And so the pursuit of God becomes life's greatest goal. Now, it's not the pursuit of religion. You know, we've left that behind, right? Who wants that? That was boring. We tried that. It didn't work. Paul tried it. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 11, he said, I was circumcised the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, concerning Hebrew, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was part of the Sanhedrin, 70 rulers in Israel, concerning the law, blameless. Zeal, he was persecuting the church. And he said, When I met Christ on the Damascus road, and in my pursuit of God now, he said, I have taken that resume he had climbed the ladder as high as you could go. He said, that resume is in the garbage can. Literally in the Greek, that's what it says. It's rubbish. Why? That I might know him. The fellowship of his suffering. The power of his resurrection. This lifelong pursuit of God, Paul said, is greater than everything I've ever experienced. That's why to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus said it this way. The kingdom of God is like something a man found in a field and he went and sold everything he had to purchase that field and you know what that's like when you received christ when you came to christ nothing else mattered the world made sense for the first time and we wanted to grasp hold of that kingdom of god and and sadly in some ways this is why i feel like i am very limited in helping people when they find out i'm a pastor they'll say oh you're a pastor well can we sit down? Can you give me some marital advice? Can you give me advice for business? You know, do you give advice? And I say, look, I can give you advice, I can give you biblical principles, and they'll work. You know, godly principles work, you know, God's word doesn't return void. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't have this pursuit of God, you're gonna hit a bump in the road where the bottom's gonna fall out. And you're gonna lose your joy and you're gonna lose the sense of where you're going because without God, it's just a veneer, it's just an outward covering. But it's the heart. And all that brings us to where we are in today's verses in Philippians, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul writes this He says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, these are false teachers. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things in himself. Therefore, in light of this, my beloved, listen this is what he says, my longed, Four brethren, Paul missed the Philippians. He called them my joy and my crown, and he said, stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. Four times, my beloved, my brethren, my joy, my crown. Paul's writing to believers here. He's saying, stand fast in the faith, hold on to the things that you know. And and he's letting out the true joy of ministry. He said, the Philippians, you're my joy, you're my crown. Do you all know ministry should be joyful? You know, we're all in some form of ministry, I hope, here. We all serve somewhere. And ministry should be a joy. I heard somebody say, well, I'm just going to be in ministry until it's not fun anymore. I'm like, where's that chapter and verse? What are you talking about? Yeah, I I think we can have fun. Yeah, there's dark days. There's hard days. That's why they call it work, by the way. I hear people say, oh, how's your, oh, my job. I'm like, well, that's why they call it work. Ministries work. Do the work of an evangelist. Rightly divide the word of truth. Work in the word of God. You know, Paul talks about the athlete, the farmer, the soldier. You can add in the accountant, the plumber, whatever you want. Uh, hard days work. Ministry's good work. Uh, sizzling summer for us on staff and a lot of volunteers, and thank you for coming out, is an 11 a.m. in the morning to 11 p.m. at night job. Uh, Keith Schlafer from our men's ministry works at Verizon and they were on strike, so Keith came and worked for us. First day he was here, he put 26,000 steps on his Fitbit. Now, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like a lot to me. And then the day of sizzling summer, we're putting in rock gardens, we're laying sod, trees are being delivered. He he goes, Bob, I woke up on Thursday. He goes, I didn't even want to come in. He goes, I worked harder three days here than three months in Verizon. And you might say, well, Pastor Bob, can't you delegate all that stuff? Shouldn't you be doing something else? And that would be for me to miss all the joy of ministry. Because I love to walk side by side. I love to watch people serving with each other and serving one another. I look at the food court. Some of the people serving you are doctors. Some are blue-collar workers. Some are housewives. And only God in the kingdom could ever align things like this. And it's my joy, and Paul said it was his joy to look at the Philippians and look at all they had done. And in verse 17, Paul says, look, we left you an example. They didn't teach and leave. Paul lived among them. He said, be imitators of me. Now, this isn't shepherding. You know, this isn't, you know, report to your leader. Listen to to how the Greek reads here. Be imitators with me following Christ, Paul said, with me. You know, we're all on this journey, all somewhere different on the journey, of becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. You know, to me, manhood is synonymous with Christ-likeness. To be a man isn't to conform to some image of a man here on earth, it's to become like Christ. Womanhood is to become Christ-like. This is the journey. We're on fully devoted followers of Christ. And Paul said, you have a pattern, and you can join me. Uh, You can imitate me. Paul's not saying, look, one day there's going to be a statue of me in Rome. You need to follow me. He wasn't looking for adoration. He said, you have me as a pattern. And you know why that's important? Uh, People used to wear those bands. What would Jesus do? That doesn't help me a lot. Because I know what Jesus would do. He would always do the right thing. He was God. He was perfect. I know what he would do. I need someone else as an example. I need an imperfect person. That was Paul. He spends all of chapter 3 saying, I haven't yet attained or apprehended or comprehended. That's what I'm looking for. I'm moving towards perfection, forgetting the things that are behind. Paul would murder Christians. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. And I need an imperfect example of what it's like to follow Christ. That's why I love biographies. You know, I read biographies and I think, oh my gosh, you know, they make the same dumb mistakes I make. And if they, if, if they can do this, then I can do it. And I learn and I grow. And you have so many wonderful examples here. And in so many ways, I think what Paul is saying is, follow me, an imperfect sinner, as I pursue a perfect Savior. And I thank God because I had a wonderful example in Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith, a bivocational pastor, 17 years. Church never grew over 50 people. And then all of a sudden, the Jesus movement comes in and it explodes. 20,000 people, 1,000 Calvary chapels on the radio across the nation. And I go to a pastor's conference, and you know what Chuck Smith's doing an hour before the conference? He's laying sod. His father left him millions of dollars, never had a new car, bought his clothes at Walmart. Does everybody have to do that? No, but what an example My first pastor's conference, I get in line, it's a camp, we're in line for camp food, I hear his voice, I turn around, he gets in line at the end of the line, he just falls in line. I came from ministries where the leaders would be eating steak in the back room. What an example. Paul said, we're an example of what it means to live for you, but imperfect. When I taught a series recently called 10, the 10 things I know about spirituality, Don't ever try and get all your nourishment from one man, one ministry, or one movement. Why? They will all let you down. They're all imperfect. We make mistakes here. We make a lot of mistakes. Paul, imperfect. I can't stress it more. Paul had pride. That's why that uh, messenger of Satan buffeted him, the thorn in the flesh. Paul was prickly. He took John Mark on a missionary journey, and John Mark makes one mistake, and he jettisons him. Took Barnabas to come around. Thank God, or we wouldn't have the book of Mark. And we would have lost John Mark. Paul had his faults. He said he was the chief of all sinners. He said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. I know a lot of ministers who have a fear of getting around people that they'll be found out. Now, when I say found out, I don't mean they're in gross sin. They just don't want to let people know who they are outside of the pulpit. Um, I think it's a mistake. I think it's worth the risk. Jesus said... The Bible says of Jesus, he tabernacled among them. I love being around God's people. I can't think of a day where I'm not around somebody in church. I love it. Now, it bites me in the butt every once in a while, to be honest. I'll be playing football or basketball with the guys, and I'll do something out of character, and they'll say, I thought you were a pastor. Now, you get that, too, because somebody will say to you, I thought you were a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a pastor. So does me getting overheated in a basketball game negate 31 years of loving and cherishing one wife, being financially above board, starting a church with eight people, growing it to 2,000, not giving the anger, not giving the lust? Does that negate all that? See, we look at ministries, and we look at ministers that fall, and we blame them, and you know who's the blame most of the time? Us, because we put them on a pedestal. We're flesh. We're all, all of, our, all of our tracks lead into the graveyard. There's only one set of tracks that came out of the graveyard. We are all imperfect people following a perfect Savior. And so Paul says, look, you have this great example. You have a pattern. And, and, and the fact that we're looking for perfection tells me that God is something better for us, that 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 heaven is what we're longing for. It says here we're citizens of heaven, of a better place, of what the Hebrews said, a, a, a far better country. Why? There's that perfect. We're longing for the perfect as we live through the imperfect. Now, there's another model Paul talks about here. It's very important. It's all through the New Testament. He said with tears, weeping, that there's another kind of example. Uh, These people who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, who as the end is their destruction, God is their belly. And here's how you can tell who these people are. They set their mind on earthly things. So when you look at other ministries out there, you listen to radio, television, the books you read, whatever you do, always ask yourself, is what's coming forth, is it to build an earthly empire or is it to build God's kingdom? That's where the lines are drawn. I was in a movement one time where uh, the leader drove a Rolls Royce and someone said, oh my gosh, are, aren't you afraid of seeing your parishioners? He said, no, I want them to see me because I want them to know if they had enough faith, they could have a Rolls Royce. That's to be earthly minded. Heavenly minded is what Jesus prayed to let heaven come to earth. Now, part of that is feeding people and caring for people. You know, that's all the way through the Bible. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing something here on earth. And Paul warns them, and he warned the leaders in Acts chapter 20 at Miletus when he brought the Ephesian elders together and weeping with tears, he said, ravenous wolves are coming in. They're in sheep's clothing, but they're going to destroy the flock. Here he says they're enemies of the cross. Probably speaking of the Judaizers who were preaching some form of works, that's to be an enemy of the cross. Jesus said it is finished. Probably Epicureans who were saying because we have bodies, we should be filled with pleasure. The cross speaks of not only our salvation, but how we live. Paul said, I'll glory in nothing but the cross. So the Bible unequivocally here says that our citizenship, you and me this morning, if you're a believer, we are citizens of heaven. Have you ever pondered that? You know what that means? We don't talk about this enough. I think we need to think about it. Paul in Colossians told the believers to think on things above. Zeteo, it means to continually think, to have one eye on eternity. What does it mean to continually think about heaven? How can heaven help us in this world? Well, the Philippians understood this because they lived in northern Greece, Macedonia, but it was a Roman colony. Luke tells us that in Acts. That means they dressed like Romans, they had Roman law, they looked like Romans, they acted like Romans— and when we go to Philippi on our tours and we look at ruins I always show people the inscriptions on the building are in Latin not in Greek. So they understood they were part of Rome but they were a colony in Greece. So even though they were in Greece they acted like Romans scripture saying even though we're on earth we need to act like citizens of heaven. Now, this is the only time the word citizen is used in the New Testament, but the idea is all through the epistles. Not only Paul, but Peter. Peter, in chapter 1, verse 1, says he's writing to the pilgrims of the diaspora. In chapter 2, verse 11, he said, Beloved, I beg you as pilgrims and sojourners. We're only passing through, right? The Bible says we are strangers, aliens, ambassadors. We are not of this world. Uh, The first rock and roll album I bought as a Christian, I had thrown all my albums out, and I bought my first, I couldn't believe there was Christian rock, Petra. And back then, you know, I bought a Petra album, and the first song was Not of This World. I'm like, wow, not of this world. And I would look at the liner notes, and it would give you Bible verses. And learned a lot of theology through Christian rock. It was a great time. And it said that we were aliens. And isn't it true? I mean, when you go to work on Monday and they're all talking about getting loaded and bombed and hooked up, hooking up, and you say, oh, what'd you do this weekend? Well, Saturday I went down the rock ministry, Sunday I went to church, and they look at you like, are you an alien? You know, my daughters would go to the doctor at 20 years old and the doctors would talk to them about being sexually active, and they'd say, well, we're not sexually active, we're virgins. And the doctors would well, you can shoot straight with me. There's, you know, the doctor client really. No, we're virgins. If you're a virgin at 20 today, you're an alien. If you believe in male and female, God made male and female, you're an alien now. If you believe in seven days of creation, you're an alien. If you believe in giving 10% of your income to the work of God, you're an alien. And that's what the Bible says that we are. How many of us, however, have one foot in both places? The church of Laodicea. Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold or I'd spit you out of my mouth. We're aliens. We're here for a short time. In some ways, we've been ruined for this world. We've tasted of heaven. We've tasted of the glory. The whole earth, the whole creation is groaning. We know there's something better. Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if heaven is what our mind should be on, if heaven is where we're going to be one time, if heaven is where our citizenship is, then what does heaven look like? Now, you guys heard me teach on this enough to know that, that I'm not into all those books of people that went to heaven. It's not because I'm skeptical. It's just because the Bible says, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered the mind of man, the things God has prepared for us. Now, it, he's given it to us in our spirit. Paul said he went to heaven and he couldn't, he, he, he couldn't put words. There was no expression of words. So how does a 14-year-old kid know the words to put it into? See, see, see why I struggle with this? There are three things I know about heaven, or at least I'm assured of. You wanna walk through it? Number one, you wanna walk through it? Okay. Number one, God will be there. You're probably thinking, you worked all week for that one? Like duh, the Pope's Catholic, uh, yeah, I hope God's there. Uh, isn't he here? Yeah, God's here. God's everywhere. He's he's not far from every one of us. His create. Yeah, yeah, we all get that, right? Turn to Revelation chapter twenty-one. By the way, don't let anyone ever hoodwink you into the fact you can't read Revelation. Uh, we'll get there next year. Uh, pick up a commentary. Read ahead. The imagery of Revelation. Are you ready for this inside secret? Is all in the Old Testament. The prerequisite for Revelation is just read the Old Testament and it will all make sense to you. Chapter 21, John writes this. He says, Now I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. By the way, that kind of annuls that idea of the sweet by and by. The Bible says one day heaven's coming to earth, there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. It's going to be very cool. But God is with them. And I want to kind of plow into this, and and we don't have a lot of time, but if you read Revelation, and, and I'll... I'll give you a synopsis here. What John is saying all through Revelation, it begins in chapter 4, is that the first five minutes you walk into glory, you will experience an eternal blessedness that you've never known. It will be the greatest ecstasy that you've ever experienced, and it won't go away. It will last through the ages the only thing I think close to it is Isaiah 6, where he was a man who was undone, and he looked at all the seraphim and the angels, and, and, and he was just, Isaiah was out of his mind. He didn't know what to think when he saw the throne of God. And yet we have all these books talking about streets of gold and mansions and all this, and, and while I think all that's there, it's all insignificant. You know why the streets are paved with gold? Because they're Insignificant. Because God's presence will be the greatest thing, and then everything after that is just gravy. The longing we have as citizens of heaven is a longing for God, a longing for a better country, a longing for his presence. Randy Alcorn, who I believe has written the best book on heaven, said, Being with God is the soul and the heart of heaven. Every other heavenly pleasure will Will, that we will have will be secondary to his presence. His presence will be enough. Everything else is gravy. Everything else will just fall in line. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis said this way, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little. And by the way, if you're under 18, if you're not married, put your fingers in your ears. But Lewis said this. He said, he said a boy who loves chocolate has never experienced sex. And then the man who's experienced sex has never understood heaven. You understand that, like, okay? Figure that one out. Talk about dinner table. Don't talk about it. Whatever you want to do. Uh, Read Lewis. It's an amazing analogy. Some of you just are starting to get it. The psalmist said, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Listen, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Of course, the psalmist was speaking about Israel, but isn't that our condition? I mean, I long for God, but i got to get up in the morning, i got to fight traffic, i, I got to pay bills, i got to raise kids, everything drains me all day in this world. i got to fight my flesh, the world, and the devil. And even there, I pursue God, and I love it, but I'm pursuing him in a dry and thirsty land where everything's against me. And then one day I'm going to get there and there's going to be eternal blessedness where we're going to be known by God. We're going to know him. The pure in heart are going to see God. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful experience. I want to take you one more step to understanding that God is in heaven. And to understand it, I want you to think of the absence of God. Because if heaven is because God is there, then the alternative hell, and the Bible speaks a lot about hell, is the absence of God. If heaven is a state of eternal blessedness because God is there, then hell is a state of eternal condemnation because God is not there. Now I know the metaphor of fire and what you think about hell, but I want you to think about it this way. If the first five minutes in heaven is going to be eternal blessedness, then the first five minutes in hell will be eternal condemnation. And if you think about it this way, and it's fascinating, everything that you and I think about that makes community possible, servanthood, kindness, love, honesty, will not exist in hell. These are God's gifts, and to reject God is to reject everything that makes community possible. John, in his vision of heaven, imagines streets of gold and pearly gates. Their existence shows us what perfect and eternal community looks like, His picture of hell is the mirror opposite. It's an image of a desolate city just after the explosion of a spiritual nuclear bomb. Try to comprehend this. The end of all community. The end of all community. And yet you hear people saying, I'm going to be with all my buddies. We're going to be drinking kegs. We'll be at the great casino in hell, and they're going to do all this stuff. And Jesus said, no, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And God's not there. Some people say, well, this is hell. No, God's here. Hell is the absence of God. Heaven is where God is. Set your affections on heaven. Be heavenly minded. The second thing I know about heaven, or at least I can guarantee you, is what will not be there. Look back at Revelation 21, verse 5. He who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, I will give you the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, that's the Greek pharmacia where we get drugs, idolaters, and all liars will have their place in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And that is the second death. So in an ancient city, when you would go to the gates, they would have a roll. And on the roll would be the inhabitants of that city. If your name wasn't on the roll, you didn't get in. Now the Bible says our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But heaven will be heaven because of what's excluded. And these are the categories. This will be excluded from heaven. Now, a couple things about this. Some of you are reading that and say, hey, that's my category. Yeah, That was your category. The Bible says we were like such like these. Some of you were liars. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of us fit these categories. But we were washed, we were cleansed. Paul, murderer, washed, cleansed. That's what's so amazing about grace. Grace changes everything. And God's going to wipe away every tear. There'll be no more sorrow, no more pain. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of tears. Tired of doing funerals. People say, what about tears of joy? You know, tears of joy only come because something bad happened and then it worked out. Scientists don't even know why we have tear ducts. I don't want to see any more tears. Pain, sorrow. People come up to me every week, my joints, my hip, my legs. I got migraines every day, I'm in pain every day. Nothing that defiles will ever be allowed in. No predator hiding behind the bushes. Nothing that ever defiles, nothing will start this ever again. God will be in heaven. None of these things will be there. And of course, the final thing is, people will be there. You know, Every once in a while, we're like Gideon. We think, oh my gosh, our tribe is small. Until so you read Revelation 4 where John looks and there's 24 elders and there's the living creatures and he sees the throne of God. And then he says, he, you know, I don't know what it is about guys in ministry. They're always in the numbers, right? The New Testament, 3,000 got saved, 5,000 got saved. Of course, John has to try and count here. And he says it was 10,000 times 10,000, 1,000, In his mind, this is the highest number. Millions, millions, untold millions around the throne of God. A lot of people are going to be there. A lot of people we think shouldn't be there or wouldn't be there. will be there. It's going to be glorious. Loved ones will be there. People say, will we be married there? Will we have kids there? Will we have sex there? I have no idea. I know this. Every time God changes plans, it always gets better. Always gets better. And Billy Graham said, if it's, if it's for enjoyment, it'll be there. It'll be better. It'll be to the nth degree. And all of this, back in Philippians, is why we eagerly await, verse 20, the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. That's why we love prophecy at Calvary Chapel. That's why we talk about the Lord's come, coming. I am very concerned with the church today, Half the church, half of the people who love God don't believe Israel has any place in God's plan. They think Israel's like Cincinnati or New Orleans. It's just another place. It has history, but that's it. is on the rise. Reformed theology has brought a lot of that into the church. I don't hear a lot of people talking about the second coming. And then I read Revelation and it says, Maranatha, come quickly to the Lord Jesus. That was the cry of the early church. The idea that Jesus could come at any time, mocked, the rapture, mocked by much of the church today. And I think back to what Jesus said, that there were, that there were virgins, you know, the, the virgins with the lamps. That, that how many of them fell asleep and had no oil? And again, they were earthly-minded. They didn't have one eye on eternity. Now, I'm not saying we study prophecy so that we could, you know, jack up our credit cards and build bunkers and all that. that that's just as bad as the other. But Paul here said, when your citizenship is in heaven, you are eagerly awaiting what is there to come back to earth. And I'll throw this one out for you. Those who reject Israel and say it's like Cincinnati, how can it be like Cincinnati if the Bible says when Jesus comes, he's coming to the Mount of Olives, and he's going to walk through the gate of the temple? You can't do that in Cincinnati. You can't do that in New Orleans. So I, I don't know where that theology leads, but I'll leave it there. But Paul said that when he comes, here's what's beautiful. He's going to transform our lowly body, verse 21, to be conformed to his glorious body. We're going to get new bodies. Christianity is not where your spirit just lives forever. Your spirit is reconnected to your body. When Jesus rose up on Sunday morning, he fulfilled the feast of first fruits. He was the first to rise from the dead. He was the first fruits. He was the prototype. And we're going to follow. In resurrected bodies. Remember, you know, one of my favorite verses. Jesus cooked fish for the guys and he ate it. He said, feel me, does does flesh and, you know, does a ghost have flesh and bone?" What a wonderful experience that's going to be. Paul said in Corinthians 15, just as we have the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the new man from heaven, and we will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. He didn't know about nanotechnology, but that's what it is. At the last trumpet, it will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. No more flesh, no more world, no more devil. You know what Paul's commanding us here? To live for the things That will last the word of God's gonna last people are gonna last church is gonna last not this building but the body of who we are we need to be living for the things that last can we have homes and cars yes obviously we live in this colony but we need one eye on eternity and why would we ever be caught up in the things of this earth? I mean, the things that are excluded from heaven. Why would we ever be caught up in it now? It says, every man who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. People will say, "Well, God didn't die to make me moral. No, He died to make you holy, set apart, so we could pour His Spirit out upon you and you could fill your calling." I quoted Lewis a lot, so I am with him. C.S. Lewis observed that if you read the history, you will find out that the Christians who did the most in the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this one. Lewis ended by saying, aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. We need a generation of he- heavenly-minded people, a generation of heavenly-minded people who see the things of this earth, people, worthy to be saved, worthy to be reached, human beings made in the image of God, God brings salvation to them. That's the church I want to be. That's the church I know you all want to be. One eye on eternity. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.